This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. My fear in the series that somehow as you take on these resolutions that you will forget These are for you. It's a transformation for you internally, personally. And I guarantee if you live by these resolutions, you're going to have extraordinary victories, no doubt. But in the moment of people's pain, the seven resolutions, that is not what they need to hear. What do they need then? They need friends. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. Hello and welcome. This is Today with Jeff Vines. And today, Pastor Jeff finishes a message about staying off God's throne. It's from our Unpossible series. If you want to catch any episodes you may have missed, you'll find it all on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines and the Unpossible series. Right now, let's hear the rest of today's message. Here's Pastor Jeff. The book of Job forces us to admit a lot of things. And one of the things it forces us to admit in the first few verses of Job is number one, popular in Job's day was the doctrine of retribution. And the thought was this, it comes from Mesopotamian uh, wisdom literature. The thought is this, that if you're righteous, it always results in prosperity. And if you're unrighteous, it results in suffering. So if you're experiencing blessing, you're a good person, If you're experiencing suffering, you're a bad person. The the story of Job throws that right out the window because we're told that Job is an upright, righteous, blameless man. So from the get-go, we're told, hey, suffering sometimes comes into your life and it has nothing to do whether you're unrighteous or righteous. Now, we're not told what it does have to do with other than the glory of God and the revelation of God, but there's still a point at which we stop and God begins. And then this is when it gets really good. And this is the core of the message. Job's friends hear about his predicament and they come to visit him. In verse 11 of chapter two, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Naamite, or Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. So his three friends get together and they hear about what Job is suffering. We need to go see him. Now, I want you to notice how they respond, and this is my fear of the series on these seven resolutions. Eliphaz speaks first, and he's the oldest, therefore he's the kindness. He's lived life a little bit. And remember, Job has lost everything, his health, his wealth, his children, everything. And then suddenly imagine your friend shows up and he says this to you. Job 4, verse 15. A spirit glided past my face, and the hair on my body stood on end. It stopped but I could not tell what it was. A form stood before my eyes and I heard a hushed voice. Can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? Now, with respect to Eliphaz, Job's response is basically gonna be, I don't know what in the world you're saying. Have you ever had a friend that tried to spiritualize everything? They'll come to you, I know you're suffering, but I've heard a word from the Lord. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't speak to us through other people, but when you use it as authority, when you say, the Lord told me this, in order to bolster your own authority to say it, when in reality, you're just wanting to say something, you're just trying to get God on board to give you the authority to say it, 
The problem when you say something like Eliphaz says to Job, it's not testable. It's so weird that Job can't test it. And basically he responds to Eliphaz by saying this, if only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. And then he ends in verse 14 of chapter six saying, a despairing man should have the devotion of his friends. He says to Eliphaz, you're underestimating the level of my pain. You think you can just give me some kind of philosophical, mystical answer and suddenly I'll do okay and it's not that simple. My problems, Eliphaz, are more complex than you're making them out to be. Besides that, no matter how much I'm struggling, even if I'm losing it, a real friend would stick by me. And then Job cries out to God, teach me and I will hold my peace, cause me to understand. Bildad is the second friend, he shows up. And after listening to Job's frustration of where is God, here's what Bildad says to him. Your words are a blustering wind. Ask the former generations and find out what their fathers learned. For we were, burn, we were born only yesterday and know nothing. Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Bildad is saying this to Job. Look what pain accomplished in the lives of people before us. And that should comfort you. You know, with both Eliphaz and Bildad, there is a measure of truth here. But it's just not very helpful. It's like when your pastor says this to you, let me tell you about my anxiety disorder and how God shaped and formed me through that. Or let me tell you about the death of my mother and what God taught me in that to be more pastoral than just propositional. Those are good things in and of themselves and in the larger context can indeed be comforting. But the reality is when you're in the midst of a deep spiritual winter, these things are good only in theory. Do you know why? The reason they're good only in theory at the moment, now they will, they will serve a great purpose in the future, but in the moment, here's what the mind thinks. Wait a minute, isn't God omnipotent? Which means he's all powerful. Can't he achieve what he wants to achieve in me through another way? Okay, Jeff, I hear that God built you in your anxiety and he built you through the death of your mother, but couldn't he have done those same things in other ways that didn't require so much pain? Job's response is this, if, beautiful. Job 9, 33, if only there were someone to arbitrate between me and God. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, build that. I hear what you're saying, but I don't need a spiritual lecture right now. I just need someone to plead my case. Someone to represent me before God and say, God, is this really necessary in Job's life? Can we not accomplish the same thing through some other means? You know, there's somebody else who said that. Pretty good guy, Jesus. Father, is there another way? Can this cup pass from me? Can we, can we do the same thing another way? But ultimately Jesus said what? But not my will, but yours be done. Job says, I need somebody to arbitrate between God and me to plead my case. And if I knew someone was pleading my case that we might be able to do this another way, then you know what? That would give me strength. Unfortunately, there's still one more friend. His name is Zophar. He's the youngest and the rudest. Sorry, it's just true. He's frustrated because Job's pain has inconvenienced him. So he's made it more about him than Job. And in Job 11 verse 12, he says this, it is more likely that a donkey will give birth to a human being than for you to listen to wisdom. Wow, 
Now that's not really something you want to say to somebody who's lost his children, his family, all of his wealth, and now even his physical well-being. Zophar doesn't like the fact that Job is not listening to what they're saying. They prepared this good sermon. They met before together and they had all their words in place and they're upset that by giving Job these words, somehow it's not comforted him. So now they're putting the blame on Job. In fact, he goes on to say, oh, this is horrible. He goes on to say in verse 14 of chapter 11, if you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then free of fault, you will lift up your face. You will stand firm and without fear. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, Job, it's obvious that you you've got some sin in your life. And if you get rid of that sin, then you know what? God will heal you. But we've already been told in chapter one that he was an upright, blameless, righteous man. And Job's response, you can tell he's not happy with Zophar. He says, doubtless, this is Job 12, verse two and three, doubtless you are the only people who matter and wisdom will die with you. <laughs> but I have a mind as well as you. I am not inferior to you. Who does not know all these things. He said, you're just telling me things I know. You're giving me all the platitudes I already knew. I love that about Job. I've already, I already know, who doesn't know this? And then he says, you know what? Before you came, I had a lot of problems. Now I have one more. When you die, wisdom's gonna die with you. Now I've been hard on Job's friends and I've done so because my fear in the series that somehow as you take on these resolutions that you will forget these are for you. It's a transformation for you internally, personally. And I guarantee if you live by these resolutions, you're going to have extraordinary victories, no doubt. But in the moment of people's pain, the seven resolutions, that is not what they need to hear. What do they need then? They need friends. The truth is that Job's friends were at their best when they weren't talking Verse two, or verse 11 of chapter two, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Naamathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him. Do you know the, the Hebrew word sympathize there, nud, is the word that means rocking back and forth. Have you ever seen somebody that's in real turmoil and have you seen them do this? They're just rocking they're trying to deal with the pain, the intensity of the suffering. I know that if I had a child that was in a cancer ward and I'm watching this child suffer and go through this chemo and not know what's going on, I know that I'd be doing this. I know I'd be rocking back and forth. Verse 12 says, when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him and they began to weep aloud and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. When they come to Job, they had heard things are bad. They didn't know how bad they were. And when they came to him and saw the depths of his suffering, they tore their robes, they sprinkled dust on their heads and they, they realized at that point, it's best that we don't say anything. To go to Job and say, hey, don't worry, it'll all work out was not gonna work. So the Bible says, they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Seven days and seven nights, they didn't say a word. And in that moment, they were brilliant. It became such a powerful act that it became part of Jewish life and culture in the years, decades, centuries to come. It's called sitting Shiva, sitting sevens. It means that when someone's mourning, you come and you just sit with them for seven days, day and night. You don't utter a word. We as Christ followers forget Ecclesiastes chapter three. There's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance, and a time to be silent, 
and a time to speak. The pain and suffering in some people's lives is so intense. When they lose a job, when they lose a relationship, when they lose a friend, when they lose a mother, a father, a son or daughter, when their hearts are so broken, when their loss seems to be too great for them to keep going on. And when the future seems so bleak that there's no hope of recovery, that's when we desperately need one of the most beautiful things that God provides. We need friends who will rock with us and mourn with us and sympathize with us and weep with us and understand the depths of our suffering. Not platitudes, not resolutions spoken outside into us. We need those who will come alongside and walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death so that we might not fear any evil. Ecclesiastes says, I've seen the burden God has laid on the human race. What a power, right there. He has made everything beautiful in its time. That's true too. He said eternity in our hearts, yes. Yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Do you know what, you know what really comforted Job in the end? He realized his own limitations, that there's so much he doesn't know that God knows. God came to him and gave him this prevailing presence and a revelation of what is yet to come. And the telltale sign of Job is when Job stands and says, I now know that my Redeemer lives and will one day stand upon the earth and renew all things. Please stay here. Focus just for one second here. I'm asking you, yes, to make the resolutions. I believe in them. But suffering must be dealt with existentially. And yes, we know that God does his best work in the most dire of situations. We are people of the cross. Jesus was most centered in the will of the Father when he was being crucified by the Romans for the salvation of all mankind. Yes, we know that. But while all this is happening, it is so essential to our soul, the real us, the essential us way down deep inside, that we must learn what Job ultimately learned when he said, if only there was someone to arbitrate between God and me. Can I tell you that there is? Representing you before the Father, pleading your case, is there any other way but ultimately trusting the Father's will is the Son who died for your sins and brought you into fellowship with God the Father. And at the end of Job chapter 29, verses 25 through 27, when Job says, I know my Redeemer lives and in the end he will stand upon the earth, we seldom read the next verse. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Here's what he's saying. Job's saying, I know suffering has to be dealt with personally, but the only way it can successfully be dealt with is to know that there is life beyond the grave, that there is more. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. He says, there's a perspective from God's side that is locked away from me in the temporal frame. I'll never be able to see it. But at the same time, I know that death is not going to break communion with me and God and neither will it break ours. 
That's why Paul said, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. Paul is using a double negative. He's saying we still grieve. Oh yeah, we grieve. Not sinful to grieve. Not wrong to weep and cry and mourn. But we grieve hopefully. It's a balanced combination of two extremes. Grieve, yes, but with hope. Are we stoic? No. Do we face life with a stiff upper lip? No. We grieve when there's a time for grieving. And that's why when Jesus comes to the tomb of Lazarus in John 11, verse 35, even though he knows what he's about to do, even though he knows he's going to restore Lazarus and Mary and Martha in just a few moments are going to be experiencing such elation that's never been experienced before. Even though he knows all that, he stops and he weeps. And then in verse 38, Jesus once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. And the Bible says that he, the Greek word, I'm sorry, it means to snort with rage. It's like a bull who's angry. The only way Christ would be angry in this situation is if death is an intruder and it was never meant to be this way. Death was not the original design. Tim Keller in his book on death says, we're not meant to die. We were meant to last. We were meant to get more and more beautiful as time goes on, not more and more enfeebled. We were meant to get stronger, not weaken and die. Paul explains in Romans 8, 18 through 23, that when we turn from God to be our own lords and saviors, everything broke. Our bodies, the natural order, our hearts, our relationships, nothing works the way it was originally designed. It is all marred distorted, broken, and death is part of that. So Jesus weeps and is angry at the monstrosity of death. It is a deep distortion of the creation he loves. So while you and I live in a world that denies death, that refuses to deal with it, and talks about as if it's a natural part of life, the circle of life, Jesus says, no, it's not. It was never meant to be this way. That sin has broken and marred this world. And then Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we'll, we'll, so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. The ultimate encouragement to suffer. Listen now, this is the end. The ultimate courage and encouragement to suffering is for you to know the child you lost will return to you and there will be a great reunion. That the love you lost will be replaced to an infinitely greater degree. That the body you lost will be restored, renewed, imperishable, indestructible, conducive to a new order in the heavenly realms. And the hopes and the dreams that you lost will pale in comparison to the dreams discovered and experienced throughout eternity. What C.S. Lewis calls and the Apostle Paul, the weight of glory far outweighs anything that you've lost in the here and now. And in the meantime, to live knowing that God works everything together for good for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Can I tell you something? 
some of you are bearing such a burden and you've been carrying it for so long, you have to give it away now. 2 Timothy 1.12, Paul says, And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and am an apostle of, and teacher. That is why I am suffering, he says. I am suffering because I am an ambassador for the good news of Christ. But then he says this, of all the pain and the suffering and the turmoil and the stonings and the floggings and the shipwrecks and the physical pain and the thorn in the flesh, he says, yet this is no cause for shame because I know whom I have believed and am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him against that day. There comes a time in everyone's life, no matter how intense the pain, that you take it and you lay it down and you entrust God with it. And you might not be able to do that in one moment of time and never have to deal with it again. But if there is a definitive time in your life when you take whatever it is that you're suffering, whatever that intense pain is, and you carry it, that you've been carrying it for so long, and you bring it over here and you drop it at the cross, and you say, I can't carry this on my own and I'm gonna entrust it to you. What does that mean? It means God, I'm going to entrust the reality that whatever I've lost here, I will regain. I will someday be reunited with the great loss. I'm going to trust that that day is going to come. And I may have still, still have bad days and good days, and I might be a roller coaster ride, spiritually speaking. But ultimately, today, I'm giving this to you, God, to know that this thing that I've lost, this thing that I've suffered, one day, Whatever I've lost is going to be replaced to this infinitely greater degree. And I am going to be able to survive this life. And I'm going to be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me because I'm going to take this burden and I'm going to stop carrying it. And I'm going to lay it down and entrust it to you because I know ultimately you're going to do something immeasurably more, greater than I could ever hope for or imagine. And that whatever I've lost, one day in the greatest reunion known to mankind, Joy. I don't know what it is in your life, but I know you can't keep carrying it. And I know the platitudes aren't going to help you. Even resolutions may not help you in the moment. There has to come a time. In the same way you brought your sins to the feet of the cross and gave them to God and he took them and forgave you for all eternity. You got to bring your burden now. The thing you've been carrying, give it to Jesus, trusting He'll take it and he'll guard it and he'll do immeasurably more than you could ever hope for, ask for, or imagine. And at the moment that you sincerely do that and you take that deep breath of giving it all to him, the trajectory of your life will change and you'll go on in strength and victory and God will do his work in you. Father, thank you for your goodness and your mercy and I pray in Christ's name. Those who are heavily burdened will lay it down whatever it is, that they would entrust it to you finally until the day of redemption when our eyes will be opened and all the dots connected and ultimate comfort and restoration occurs. We wait anxiously for that day, for the liberty and freedom of the sons of God and for the creation that cries out will be restored. 
and all good things will come to the surface and everything that is bad will be undone. We wait for that day in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Vines. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Vines wherever you get your podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.